morning. If you would uh, open up your scriptures to Isaiah 37, starting verse 1, and uh, it's good to have people in here, of course, and to be preaching to faces. Um, If you're at home watching the live stream, I just want you to hear our heart and my heart. Um, uh, If there's reasons that's keeping you home because of the virus, uh, we uh, are are looking forward to the day that you're back here, and we want to still minister to you and you're on our minds. Um, so I hope uh, you don't feel forgotten just because there's people within this building. Um, uh, with that said, it's been um, probably about a month ago, uh, although it seems maybe like a year ago to me, um, that I started praying with everything that was happening, starting with this virus. Um, what do we need to cover as a church? What do I need to, as a pastor, um, teach our our body here at Country Oaks? What topics um, do we need to address um, as a pastor with the world events that uh, are happening? And honestly, everything is changing so fast. If I were trying to just cover every topic, it'd be a topical sermon every single Sunday. And so next week, we are going to jump into um, Ephesians, and we're going to go verse by verse, um, just like we were before um, we started covering uh, a couple different topics. But there was three main things that jumped out to me that we needed to cover. Um, And and before we get started, uh, I'm glad there's families in here. Uh, If your kid makes noise, good, right? Um, I'm happy that you guys are here. Uh, uh, Kids, let's do our best to be quiet and listen to the sermon. But um, parents, please, uh, our hearts says that parents— families are here, and we're thankful that you have brought your kids. I just want want you to hear that this morning. Um, There's three things, though, that that jumped out at me about a month ago that I felt like I needed to cover. I hope they were put there by the Holy Spirit, and not just my um, uh, flawed reasoning, but the first thing that really felt like we needed to cover was the relationship between the church and the state, and our call as Christians to be submissive and respectful and honoring our government. Um, it's one of the reasons we're doing what we're doing right now. Um, I, it kills me. I just want you to hear this. It kills me as a pastor that we are signing up for church. Um, I, the, that is just because we're trying to obey our state and, and be within the laws um, uh, of keeping it be under 100 people in this room and spreading the church out to three services. If we needed to go to a fourth service, we would do that to, uh, to try to be respectful and honoring to our state. Um, And so we covered that. We spent two weeks talking about the relationship between the church and state. Um, The second thing that I felt like needed to be addressed within the church is church unity. Um, And to be honest, this is my biggest concern as a pastor out of everything. It's church unity. We need to have grace, love, and respect for each other and each other's views. Um, You know, it's funny, about two and a half months ago or whenever, before this started— I was thinking to myself, and we've gone through First John and really talking about loving one another and church unity. And then we jumped into Ephesians and started talking about unity. And it's just been unity, unity, unity for a year and loving each other for a year. And at that point, I'm like, man, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have gone to Ephesians. We've been talking about this too much, maybe. And now I see that God was preparing us for a time that I really feel is going to be a struggle for the church to stay unified. Um... There's so many different views that are within the church right now, and I'm reading. Everyone asks me, Nathan, are you seeing a lot of fighting within Country Oaks? Is that why you keep bringing up church unity? And let me tell you, I haven't. I'm not on f- 
social media either, so I, maybe there is that I haven't seen, but I haven't. I've seen unity within our church. Um, I've just seen the church at large struggle with being unified through all this, and I see the um, challenge that we have with all the different thoughts that are going on and different arguments. And, um, and so that's something that, that's been on my heart, but I want you to think about this too. Ephesian also covers unity between races and culture. I mean, that's why that topic has got brought up in the book of Ephesians. Right? Between races and cultures, Jews and Gentiles, to cultures, to, to races. And I don't like using that word race because we are one race. We are the human race. Cultures and ethnicities that hated each other, that had a history of hating each other. And Paul is challenging these two cultures to come together and, and let their love for Christ transcend the differences that they've had and be one and, and be a model to the communities around them to reflect God and his goodness and, and how important the relationship, his glory, how it transcends all of our differences and we are going to be back in Ephesians, and we're going to go over all of that again. Um, and so unity, church unity, has been on my heart, and it's on my heart. Um, but the third topic that I really felt like we needed to cover as a church is fear. Every person I've talked to throughout all the world events that have been going on struggle with fear at some level. If it's the virus, the government, the economic fallout, losing your job— or just fear of society falling apart, or different aspects of the society with the riots and everything that's happening. Um, the common underlining factor that I've been talking with people is fear. Fear of, of the surrounding circumstances, and for some, this fear is suffocating. And so we've been doing, the, um, last week and this week, uh, a sermon that I've split into two sermons called, uh, titled, Trusting God in Times of Uncertainty. Trusting God in Times of Uncertainty. And last week I asked the question, what does it mean to trust God? And I gave the answer. It really means that you trust in who God is. You trust in who God is. Trusting God is directly connected to what one believes about God's character. Right? The Bible says that God is holy, good, righteous, just, gracious, loving. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. Therefore, he is trustworthy. And there's three truths about God that, that we need to hold on tightly in uncertain times. And the three truths are, God is completely sovereign over everything. I said last week, quoted R.C. Sproul, that there is not a maverick molecule in the universe. Just think about that for a second. God is completely sovereign over everything. God is completely good and loving. If you have, are saved, you have been adopted into the family of God. And, and God is our Father, and he looks at us as sons and daughters. He is, he is completely good and loving. And thirdly, he's completely 100% wise. He knows what he is doing. When you add all three of these attributes together, you see that God is completely trustworthy. One author that I've read put it this way, God in his love always wills what is best for us. God in his wisdom always knows what is best, and God in his sovereignty has the power to bring it about. Today I want to answer a question and look at this in a slightly different way. And the question is this, what should I do? What should I do 
in uncertain times? What action should I do? It, it seems like trusting is, a, is, is passive. Trusting in God is a passive action, although I do believe it's an action. I'm asking the question, what, what should I actively be doing right now in times of uncertainty if you're struggling with fear? And I want to look at this passage to help us answer that question. So let's just get the context of Isaiah 37. The context is that Jerusalem is surrounded by the Assyrian army, this massive army that we've been talking about, 185,000 troops at least. A massive, and not just a massive army, but a brutal army. It was known for its brutality. There had been threats of death, torture, and starvation for the people of Judah within this city of Jerusalem. From man's perspective, we said last week, from man's interpretation of the reality around them, this was an impossible situation. Right? There was no hope. But we learned last week, or we also learned last week, the Assyrian army was engaging in, in psychological warfare. Right? The chief officer, or the Rabshaka, which just means the chief officer, gave eight devastating arguments, eight scary arguments of why Judah should just give up, surrender to the Assyrians, and not even, not even try um, to survive. And so, Chapter 37, verse 1 says this. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, these eight devastating arguments, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord, right? This impossible situation from earthly perspective, right? From an earthly perspective without any revelation from God, this was a hopeless situation. We learn, though, in verses 2 through 9, uh, in this passage, Hezekiah goes to the prophet Isaiah and asks for prayer. And God speaks to Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah and tells him Judah will be saved. God will fulfill his promise. And we learned this last week in Hosea 1, 7, uh, 20 to 50 years before this event. God promised, I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them. And he's, he promised that it would be by miraculous um, event. It would be a miraculous salvation. So skip down to verse 10. The king of Assyria, his name is Sennacherib, and this guy writes um, Hezekiah a letter as his last attempt to try to get Judah to surrender, his last, um, last attempt of psychological warfare. And it's a letter he writes to Hezekiah, and this is what it says in verse 10. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. In other words, he's saying, God can't save you. We're too powerful. Look at this massive army. God can't save you. Listen to what he says, though. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you. You know what that is? That's an attack on the character of God. It's an attack on the character of God. Don't let him deceive you. He's a liar. He's not trustworthy. He's attacking God's character. And I want you to think about this because it's the same exact thing that happened in Genesis 3. It's the same exact thing that happened in Genesis 3. The the devil came and questioned uh, the woman and said, did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said, yes. He said we can eat from any tree besides one tree. One tree we can't eat up. It was clear that, that, that God told Eve, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. And the devil's response is, you will not surely die. 
In other words, God has lied to you, Eve. Don't trust him. He's a liar. He's not all good. He's not all loving. He's not trustworthy. The devil in Genesis 3 was attacking the character of God. Side note, I just want to make this very clear. This is true spiritual warfare. I feel like we get sidetracked with all these ideas of what spiritual warfare is, but true spiritual warfare is any philosophy, idea, teaching, situation, experience, circumstance, or feeling that tempts you to not trust God. That's spiritual warfare. And every time we sin, we're not trusting God. You know, every time we sin, we're attacking the character of God by saying you're not trustworthy. That's spiritual warfare. And King Sennacherib is saying, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you. He's tempting Hezekiah and Judah to doubt God in that situation. So what should we do? I ask that question. What what action should we take when we find ourselves in these impossible situations, in in fearful situations, in frustrating situations, in uncertain circumstances? What should we do? What action? Well, I believe we should do what Hezekiah did, and that is to pray. That should be our first action, is to pray. Skip down to verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter... From the hand of the messengers, this again is a letter from Sennacherib to Hezekiah, and he read it and read it, and, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord, and Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Listen, Hezekiah in his distress, struggling with trusting God, went to God and prayed. And this prayer was amazing for at least three reasons. The first reason is this prayer that Hezekiah prays is biblically rich, right? His prayer is, is straight from the book of Deuteronomy. The second, the second reason why this was an amazing prayer is that it was radically God-centered, not man-centered. He was concerned more than anything else as we go through this prayer with God's glory. And third, and this is something that we need to understand, third, his prayer was honest. He was honest about the circumstances. He was honest about seeing this massive army as he was praying. I'm sure he probably could have even heard the army outside the walls. And he was honest with God with this impossible circumstance that he found himself in. So look at verse 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, throned above the cherubim. This is Hezekiah's prayer. He says, O Lord of hosts. This title is used 46 times in the book of Isaiah. This title emphasizes God's sovereignty over the heavenly powers and therefore over even the earthly powers. He's Lord over Everything, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, even though he is Lord of hosts, he is especially our God. That's what Hezekiah is saying. We are your chosen people, Israel. He's stressing God's love for God's chosen people, Israel. It throned above the cherubim. The middle of Israel was Jerusalem, and the heart of Jerusalem was the temple. In the center of the temple is the Holy of Holies. In the middle of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant were two statues of angels called cherubim. And God was especially present in, this, in the Holy of Holies above the cherubim. The Lord of hosts, Lord of everything, heaven and earth, God of Israel, especially Israel, God's chosen people, and thrown above the cherubim, God's special presence in the Holy of Holies, in the heart of the temple, in the heart of Jerusalem. You are the God, you alone. 
In other words, Hezekiah is saying there is no other gods. Hezekiah knew there was only one God. All the pagan nations were, were polytheistic. They believed in many gods. And Hezekiah is saying, you are God alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. In other words, you have authority over everything. Verse 17. Incline your ear, O Lord, and open your eyes. I'm sorry, the second part of verse 16, it says, you have made heaven and earth. In other words, you're all powerful, maker of heaven and earth. Verse 17. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear all the words Hezekiah is saying, you are the living God. All of the gods are lifeless. They can't hear. They can't see. You are the living God that hears and sees. Lord, see and hear all the words. All the words of who? Look what he says. All the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. He's saying, as a guy is praying to God, listen to this, this pagan king. He is mocking you. Do not let him get away with it. Your glory is on the line. Listen, Hezekiah's first concern and with what was going on was the glory of God. Not his safety, not his comfort, but God's glory. Verse 18, truly, O Lord, the kings of, uh, of Assyria have laid waste to all the nation and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. Hezekiah's prayer was concerned with God's glory, but it was also honest. Right? He understood reality. He wasn't blind to what was going on. This massive army around the, the, the city of Jerusalem. This impossible circumstance without a miracle. Right? He doesn't stand a chance. Completely surrounded, hopeless. He's honest with God in his prayer. But then, and we need to do this, listen. But then Hezekiah takes what he sees from man's perspective, man's interpretation. He takes what he sees, right? He takes his thoughts captives, his fears, his doubts, his angers, and he sees the situation from a biblical perspective. Listen, we need to do this. Put what we see, man's perspective, and try to see it from God's perspective. Verse 18. Truly, O Lord... The kings of Assyria have laid waste to all nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods. But the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they were destroyed. These were false gods, right? These pagan nations, man-made idols, you are the living God. Hezekiah's prayer is radically God-centered. And listen to this last line, verse 20. So... Now, so now, O Lord, our God, save us from the hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Save us, why? That all the kingdoms of earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Glorify yourself, in other words, in our salvation. Hezekiah's prayer, again, was radically God-centered, and that's because God is radically God-centered. Listen, Scripture is clear on this. Scripture is clear on this. 
God is radically God-centered. Why did God create us? For his glory. Isaiah 43, 6-7. Why did God call Israel? For his glory. Jeremiah 13, 11. Why did God rescue Israel from Egypt? For his glory. Psalms 106, 7-8. Why did God raise up Pharaoh? For his glory. Romans 9, 17. Why did God part the Red Sea? For his glory, Exodus 14, 4 and 18. Why did God spare Israel from the wilderness? For his glory, Ezekiel 20, 14. Why did God give Israel victory in the promised land? For his glory, 2 Samuel 7, 23. Why did God save Jerusalem from this attack? For his glory, 2 Kings 19, 34. Why did God restore Israel from exile? For his glory, Ezekiel 36, 22 through 23. And that's just the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus did everything for the glory of his Father. John 7, 18, Matthew 5, 16, John 5, 44, John 14, 13, and you just keep going. God forgave our sins and saved us for his glory. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, we spent weeks on that passage. God gave us the Holy Spirit for his glory, John 16, 14. And listen to what 1 Corinthians 10.31 says. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let me ask a question. Does prayer fit under whatever you do? Yes. We should be praying for the glory of God. In fact, this is the common way people prayed in scriptures. I want you to think about this. John and Peter in Acts were, were uh, threatened by the authorities. Threatened to be beaten, to be jailed. There were uncertain circumstances, fearful circumstances of persecution. In Acts 4.24, this is what, what happened. And when they heard it, right, these threats of persecution, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. Think about that. That's the first thing they pray. God, you're in control of the situation. Complete trust that God is sovereign and all-powerful in control of exactly what was going on. Who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And you're not just sovereign, you're all-powerful. You do whatever you want. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said to the Holy Spirit, right? And they literally start praying scripture. This is one of the reasons I, I've been promoting and, and, and really encouraging just to pray through the Psalms. They, they pray Psalms too, word for word. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they continued in their prayer, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with all the Gentiles and the people of Israel, verse 28, this is amazing, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Wow. I mean, just trust in God's sovereignty and these, uncircumstance, or these uh, uncertain circumstances that they found themselves in. Verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon these threats. In other words, save us from these threats. Look what's happening. Right? These were credible threats of persecution. And why save us? Listen, listen, 29. Look upon these threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. In other words, save us 
so that we can continue to preach, that we continue to, to glorify you by sharing the gospel. This prayer is radically God-centered, and it shouldn't surprise us, right? Exactly how Jesus taught Peter to pray. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You be glorified. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Peter's prayer was radically God-centered. That's because Jesus taught Peter to pray God-centered prayers. Hezekiah's prayer was radically God-centered. Trusting that God is sovereign, that God is good, and that God is wise. Hezekiah, in his time of need, in his time of fear, he prayed. His actions were prayer. He actively prayed. That was his first response. You know what? Prayer shows and builds trust in God. If our first thought when we find ourselves in fearful circumstances is, is to get on our knees and pray, it shows that you have trust in God. You're going to, to God with those fears. And it builds trust in God. So here's my question. Are we as a church praying? Do we pray when we find ourselves in un certain circumstances and fearful circumstances because listen prayer is powerful i just want to be clear listen our country needs prayer right now our country needs the church praying right now my heart is heavy There is hurting people out there that need to hear about Jesus. We need to be a church that prays. Because listen, prayer matters. Prayer matters. Look at verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, because you have prayed, verses 22 through 29, Isaiah writes this poetic prophecy which says that God's going to save Judah. But let me just think about that for a second. Because you have prayed. Before Hezekiah prayed, God already said, I will save Judah. He prophesied this 20 to 50 years before this event, before, before Hezekiah was even king. And why did God say, because you have prayed, I will save Judah? Let me just ask it this way. Did God save Judah because God sovereignly decreed or declared it years before Hezekiah ever, ever was king? Or because Hezekiah prayed for salvation in that, in that circumstance? The answer is yes. It's both. God in his sovereignty saved Judah. Listen, and prayer matters. God is sovereign over everything, and prayer matters. God preordained—this is going to blow your mind—God preordained to save Judah by miraculous means. And he also preordained that he would do it because Hezekiah prayed. He would do it because Hezekiah prayed, and at the same time, it was Hezekiah's choice to pray. 
All this to say that God is completely sovereign and our prayers matter. God wants us to pray. Look at verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Snatcher of Keen of Assyria, I will save you. Right? That's what the next part of this says. In fact, look at verse 33. It says this. You skip down to verse 33. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or, or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way he came, by the same way he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. In other words, I will save Judah for my glory, for my own sake. And he also says, for the sake of my servant David. Why add David? Why David? Because God made a promise. And God keeps his promises. Right? Because God is trustworthy. I started this sermon by asking a question, what should I do in uncertain times? And the answer is you should pray. And what action should I do? You should pray. Because prayer shows trust in God, and prayer is powerful. It's powerful. Long ordeal, two chapters long, two sermons, and trusting God in this historical narrative. And I love this, right? The threat of this Assyrian army, this massive army outside of the walls of Jerusalem— Two verses on the destruction of Assyria's army. Look at verse 36. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Just think about that. The army wakes up, or what's ever left of the army wakes up and looks around. There's 185,000 people dead. And Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed, returned home, and lived in Nineveh. Right, he's like, I'm out of here. Hosea's prophecy came true, right? I will have mercy on the house of Judah. I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Instead, I'm going to send one angel, one messenger, and kill 185,000 men like that. Let me just remind you what Jesus told Peter, too, in Matthew 26, 53, right? When Peter was going to do something by taking out his sword and attacking. This is what Jesus told Peter. Do you, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? A legion, just so you know, is 6,000. That's 72,000 angels. One angel killed 185,000 thousand men. Listen, God is in control. He is all-powerful. He is good and loving. And he is wise. Therefore, we should not fear in uncertain times, but trust in him. Let me just end with this. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're watching on the live stream, or if you're in this room even, and and you're not a Christian this morning, I just want to be clear with you. You should fear. 
not the government, not riots, not the virus. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell forever. You have sinned against a just and holy God. But here's the good news. God is also love. And in his love, he sent his son to pay the price that we owed, to pay for our sins. He lived a perfect, sinless life on this earth. He, he died on the cross for our sins, and he was raised on the third day, and he has all authority. He's the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes, believes in him, should not perish but have eternal life. Listen, trust God by putting your faith in Jesus and find salvation. just want to give a couple quick announcements before we pray and be dismissed. We'll be back in Ephesians next week. Um, and uh, we'll be going verse by verse through Ephesians just like we have. We'll probably do a review in the coming weeks. Um, and because Ephesians addresses race, um, and again, I don't like that word. We're all from the same race. We all come from Adam. We all are in the human race. Ephesians address cultural and ethnic issues, and we're going to address that because Ephesians does, and that's where God has us providentially in Ephesians. And it amazes me. But that's where we are right now, and that's the book that we're in. And so we're going to be going through Ephesians. Um, Wednesday night, we have our last hermeneutics class. I would love for you to um, either come at 7 o'clock or watch online. Um, a hermeneutics is how to interpret Scripture, how to really handle your, um, Scripture, how to interpret um, uh, in, a, in a reasonable uh, way. And if you come, I'll explain that more. Um, uh, offering plates are in the back. People keep asking me about that. We're not passing anything around because of the virus. If you, if you have an offering you want to put it in the back, the plates are in the back. If you have a prayer, we'd love to pray for you as a, uh, a church. Write your prayer on a piece of paper and just throw it in the offering plate as you leave. And I would just ask to look for opportunities to show love and grace toward each other this week. And pray for our nation. Pray for our nation. Pray for our churches. Pray for those churches that find themselves right in the middle of these cities. That they would preach the gospel boldly. I mean, they share the love of Christ boldly. That they would reflect, reflect the church the way it should be. Be praying this week. Let's pray and you'll be dismissed. Dear me, Father God, Lord, God, I pray for the church, Lord. It's clear in your word that you desire a diverse church. It's clear, Lord, that for eternity we will have all, all tongues and tribes and nations will be represented there, Lord. And that makes you look beautiful because you, our love for you, transcends all of our differences, Lord. 
God, I pray the church reflects that. I pray the church boldly proclaims the gospel. God, be with the church, Lord. Let it reflect your glory in this time, Lord. God, help us to trust you with the fears that we have, Lord. Help us to go to you in prayer. I pray that we, this week, as a body, are just in prayer, Lord, of everything that's going on. Lord, I also pray we sleep well at night knowing you're in control. Be with us, Lord, in your son's name. Amen.